Today is February 27, 2013. This is Amy Begley interviewing Lorraine Moeller for the RRCA Women Pioneers of Running Oral History Project. Lorraine is best known for competing in three Commonwealth Games, four Olympic Games, while winning a bronze medal in the 1992 Olympic Marathon. And she also won 16 of the 30 marathons that she competed in over her long career. Hello, Lorraine. Hi, Amy. It's nice to be here. Well, thank you. You have had an amazing career and probably one of the longest careers. When did all this running begin for you? It began when I was uh, age 13 and uh, I went to high school. And uh, I graduated from junior athletics, which consisted of 100-meter sprints, um, to senior athletics, which involved the longer distances. And uh, everything sort of took off from that point on. And who got you into running? Um, I really got myself into running. I um, enjoyed it. And uh, when I got into this um, senior athletics, and we have a very different system in New Zealand where I grew up, it's more of a community sport. It's administered through the community rather than through the schools. And um, so there was not a college system or a scholarship system or anything like you have here. And uh, so we were mentored by the older members in the club, and uh, it was uh, uh, nationwide. And uh, so there were all sorts of competitions, not so many for women. So I, uh, once I ran my first 400 metres, I knew that I was a distance runner. And uh, there weren't very many long distances for women. It was not, you're talking uh, 1968. Um, so this whole distance running phenomenon was not in place at that time. So, you know, in the 400 metres, I found I could beat the girl who always beat me in the sprints. And I was pretty chuffed about that. And uh, so I went and I got pretty keen and went in more races and I got my name in the paper and that just sort of kept me going. And uh, then I ran a cross-country race and collapsed in it. And my dad said, well, my goodness, if you're going to do that to yourself, you better train. So he started to run with me. And it began the beginning of a, a long relationship with my father where we both became runners. And it was really a, a wonderful time right through my teenage years. And I became very close to my father as a result of that. It is amazing the bonds that you can form, not only with your family, but with, with friends through running. Yes. Well, I always tell people to choose their running partners wisely because within a few miles, I'll know all your secrets and you'll know theirs. Yes. I, I definitely agree with that one. Um, it's definitely going to be an interesting conversation with you because you didn't have sports in school and everything was really, everything took place outside of school. So um, so you guys had to get to different practices. It wasn't like you stayed at school and, and did practices there. Um, which do you think? Which system do you think is? I guess they're both different. But did you enjoy the system that you had, making it more of a community-based instead of a school-based program? Yes, I did. I liked it very much because um, it was um, very much a way of passing on the history that we had in our country of um, great sports people. And um, the uh, the heroes of our time were very accessible 
to, uh, I suppose because it's a small country, and um, my coach was John Davies, who was a bronze medalist in the 1964 Olympics in the 1500 metres. And he was a protege of Arthur Lydiard, who was uh, a very great coach, who I think did a lot to revolutionise training in the uh, 20th, 20th century. Uh, 20th century, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to remember what centuries were in now, <laughs> so, so fast. Um, and so, uh, and I was on my first national team when I was 16. And uh, so, you know, running in international competitions, and uh, it just uh, springboarded me very quickly into the idea that I could compete with anybody in the world, and that that was in my mind by the age of 16. And so I didn't have to work up to that kind of confidence. I think I was just sort of talented and naive, naive enough to know that when I went out there that, um, you know, anybody was their game. And uh, so it got me to think of myself in a certain way very early on. And I think that is, uh, doesn't happen as much in the American system. And um, I see that these runners that come through, and they come through the college system, and there's so many of them, um, and the pressure is on in college to produce, so often at the expense of really uh, doing a good base and setting yourself up for a lifetime of sport, um, many runners come out uh, burned out, uh, not competing as well as they did when they went into uh, college. And uh, I, I see, you know, it all depends on the college, and uh, there are some very good colleges that do nurture their runners. But um, I, I also see many Americans that uh, come out and they, they virtually have to start over, and they don't ever aspire to anything near what they are capable of. I think that's a, a really valid assessment of, of the system. Um, being in a club program and more of a community program, did you stay with a pretty consistent coach and, and training group throughout your career? Yes, I did. So my my local club recruited uh, this Olympian from, he was in a neighboring town, to come and coach me because they saw that I had some ability and they wanted to pass me over to somebody who would be able to um, bring out that talent that I was showing. And uh, I got a really sound basis of training, and I think that that is what set me up for longevity in the sport. And I, I enjoyed a really long career. You know, I was, you know, running on uh, national competitions when I was 14 and internationally when I was 16 and retired at my fourth Olympics when I was 41. And I could not have done that, I think, if I hadn't got that solid base in my teenage years. It's pretty amazing because you see age group kids here in the U.S. already running, um, you know, they run a lot of miles, they do a lot of intervals, they're already racing on the track, and and you were kind of doing some of that, but I think they were setting up for more of a long-term approach because they'd probably been through that themselves, I'm assuming. Yes, well, I think having the Lydiard system, and it is based on a, on a, a cyclic system, so that um, you 
do an endurance base first before you do the faster work so that you have the recovery systems to be able to handle work easily. And uh, you really want to get into training that is regenerative, not training that is depleting you over time. Um, and that is an essential um, difference, I think, between a, a lot of the training systems that are, are promoted here and um, what I grew up on. And so we were really nurtured for the long term, and uh, our um, and and that showed in my career. And I, you know, was able to compete at internationally for everything from uh, 400 meters to the marathon. And um, so it not only gave me longevity, but it also gave me an incredible range of uh, competing ability. And uh, it was a lot of fun, I tell you. <laughs> it was wonderful. <laughs> And I also think it's um, kids have an inherent speed, and I think it's really good for them to do the track first um, and to go to the longer distances when you have some a few years under your belt. I don't like kids competing in marathons. It just is, does not sit well with me. I know people will argue either way, but um, I really think that um, that they should develop their um, at their natural speed and uh, get a good grounding on something that is not too taxing on the system. I, yeah, I definitely agree with that. The kids and they need to develop as well. They need to be able to grow and have and grow into the adults that they can be before they um, start stunting all those systems. Um, yeah. so as you as you grew up in a club system, did they have any restrictions on how far the women could run versus the men? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes. Um, so we had a very good history in distance running, and um, Arthur Lydiard had produced gold medalists all over the place, and there was a lot of focus. And we looked at our uh, athletes the way that um, the U.S. looks at their Hollywood stars. Um, so, you know, that was in the mindset. But then I was also at an age where, um, you know, in the 60s, women's liberation was just sort of the buzzword and things were just starting, but they hadn't really got to the point where they had broken down and rebuilt the systems, that, uh, the point that we're at now. So um, I was right at the beginning of this rapid evolution in uh, women's sports. Uh, the furthest event that was available to me at that time was the 800 metres. And... Um, at the Olympic level, the longest distance that was offered to women was the 1,500 metres, which is not even a mile. And uh, so there was a sentiment that girls could not run and, you know, the whole, you know, uterus will fall out and you'll grow a moustache and, you know, you'll get great big muscles and all that kind of thing. And, um, and that was uh, certainly a, a big uh, area that I had to tackle. Um, I loved to run, I wanted to run, but I certainly didn't want to grow um, great big muscles and, and have a moustache. Um, and, uh, you know, I've come to realise that <laughs> they're all old wives' tales. Um, you know, I, uh, my uterus didn't fall out and I did end up having uh, my baby when I was 45 years old, when I'd done with my running, so everything was still quite intact, even though I had spent years running. Um, and uh, 
you know, things changed. And I think uh, there was a whole group of women that uh, were pushing for change. And uh, and it was uh, just a series of women worldwide who got out there and did what they loved to do despite the um, the dire warnings that were bandied about at the time. And those women created a wave that created change. And I feel like I was a part of that. No, I was one one cell in that whole movement, and uh, it, it was wonderful. And, uh, you know, it was like having a ringside seat to um, this whole chapter in the advancement of women in sport, Amy. It was just wonderful. And I could, you know, be there right as each change was taking place. So... You know, I got to run uh, roads in the States and um, started to push the boundaries and how far I thought was acceptable and, you know, jumped in my first marathon and won it and did really well and then got invited to the first um, Avon uh, World Championships because there was not an official championship that was spearheaded by Catherine Switzer and... um, and I won that, and uh, you know things were really happening. And um, I and and that whole movement got the marathon accepted in the Olympics. And once that happened, then the other events followed. There was just a vacuum that was created in the five and ten thousand, uh, and um, it very quickly. Uh, moved on so that within a few cycles of Olympics, women had complete parity in all events. So that was very, very exciting to be a part of all of that. That's amazing. You've you've definitely seen a lot of changes, not only in the distance that women are allowed to run and um, the meets that now accept women when they didn't. You've also probably seen a change in equipment for running, like bras and spikes, watches, all the fuel for the marathon, and, and even the tracks. I know that in reading your book and, and Anna Dane's book, it talks about when the first um, all-weather track was built in, in New Zealand and um, how that changed things as well. So what can you tell me about the change in equipment and, and tracks throughout your career? Well, when I started running, I ran in uh, canvas uh, canvas shoes. They were just, you know, yeah a little rubber sole on them and uh, I would go for four mile runs on the road with my dad and on the way back my legs would be completely numb from the pounding and uh, I always found that a bit of an advantage because I figured if I couldn't feel my legs then I might as well sprint because it wouldn't hurt Um, and so um, you know that was that was the beginning of um, uh, you know I think her self-reliance because you you just ran with whatever you had. Um, uh, we never had, you know, we didn't have um, these wristwatches. Um, we would just estimate how far we ran. Um, we'd look at the clock and the before we left and look at the clock when we came home um, so we weren't tapped into all this time and uh, you know all this GPS and all that sort of stuff I think it really helped in being able to uh, tap into our own uh, internal uh, clocks and um, feedback systems I think that is really important I, I 
I really uh, think that a lot of runners become over-reliant on these external um, ways of measuring themselves and it really takes a lot out of the whole um, rhythm and aesthetic of the experience of running. Um, gosh, uh, you know, we never had gels. Um, we'd go long runs. We wouldn't even drink over, have a drink of water. Um, uh, I often... <laughs> what did that? Did, did, um, did that change at all during your marathon career? Did you change up what you ate or drank during your marathon, or did it stay the same? Yeah, no, I, I learned to drink, and uh, I, I would force myself to drink because everyone was doing, you know, drink, drink, drink water, and that was before the, you know, whole hypoatremia thing um, came about. Um, so, yeah, I did drink on marathons, um, but, you know, I, I mean, we're only out there for two and a half hours, so it's not like you're going to starve or... Um, and, you know, I think our bodies got really efficient at um, burning fat. And uh, we got really good at pacing, too. Um, and that's uh, another thing. Uh, you know, you you learn and you know this very well yourself, that you develop this uh, reliance on yourself that you know exactly how to titrate your energy so that you get the very best out of yourself over the course of an event. And... Um, I think that came about because we had to be self-reliant. Um, and, oh, clothing. Clothing was horrible. You know, it was, um, everything was based on a, the men's model of how to do things because that's all there was. So it didn't, uh, training and uh, clothing and all equipment didn't have much feminine input when we came into the sport. So, um, when I was first sponsored, uh, when I came to the U.S. in the early 80s, uh, the shoes, everything, it was New Balance, everything was grey and maroon. And, uh, you know, it was men designing women's clothes. And uh, I remember when I won the Boston Marathon and I got to go on Good Morning America. And... Uh, they came out with a rain suit for me to wear, and it <laughs> was a gray, a gray plastic rain suit. And you know, I walk onto the stage set, and it's going swish, 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 swish. <laughs> you sit down, and every movement you made, um, it was, uh, it was just very different, you know. Um, and uh, it's changed, you know. Now we've got much more um, of the feminine. Um, input into the sport and it's really made it for the better and um, you know we can get out there and be women and we can uh, be excellent and uh, still be feminine and look good and um, and I think uh, more than that uh, it's brought a, maybe not so much of a uh, there's more of an enjoyment and perhaps the more feminine nurturing aspects have come into training and being recognized and uh, the sport has certainly changed a lot I think because of this influx of women's participation for the good. It's been wonderful. Yeah, we've gone from only a few women running the marathon to now women make up probably 51% of all marathon participants so 
that's a, that's a huge swing. Yeah. Yeah, I can remember going to the first marathon in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. The first marathon in Brazil, and it was called the Maratona Atlantica Boa Vista. I went there in 1979, and I was one of three women running in a field of a 1,000. So, um, and I think I finished like seventh or eighth in the entire race. And uh, during the race, I passed so many people that tried to sprint every time they saw me because they didn't want a woman to overtake them. And uh, at the end of the race, uh, there was a 50% uh, dropout rate. So 500 men, because all the women finished, 500 men dropped out of that race. And I, I personally felt responsible for a lot of them <laughs> doing that because um, they, they, didn't, they ran too hard because they didn't want me to be in front of them. I think that's a good lesson for them, hopefully. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, you know, overall, I think the men were uh, very um, supportive of women entering. I think they really liked to share the roads. And uh, um, there were times when men were probably over-solicitous and helping, like blocking and getting your drinks and blocking the wind and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh so, you know, there, there was certainly, um, it was a learning curve, I think, for both sexes to have women come in. And um, I know there were quite a few men who said, you know, the day a woman beats me, there's a day I hang up my shoes, who had to um, uh, revisit with that statement and uh, um, because they wanted to keep running. And um, And I think what we've seen is that the difference between the sexes is not as great as what we had believed back then. And uh, there was a huge um, gender gap, and, but it was mostly, I think, uh, societal and, um, and a set of expectations that were not necessarily biological. And now we see that in these races, the best men are... Uh, there's only about 10% that are ahead of the woman. So there's a huge overlap and I think it's been a wonderful experience for men and women to start to participate in activities and enjoy them as human beings rather than uh, lay any claim because of their particular gender. I definitely agree with that. That was well put as well. Thank you. Um, what, is, um, what did you think about the tracks. I mean, when you were younger, running in the clubs, you guys had grass tracks, and and did you do you miss those days, or do you like did you like the new tracks that that came about? Um, we were very suspicious of the new tracks, and uh, when we first, uh, well, I ran on grass tracks, and we ran barefoot, and that solved a lot of problems. And I actually think it's wonderful. I mean. You know, there's a whole barefoot movement, but um, we were doing it back then just out of necessity. And there is a connection to the earth, and I think uh, a certain grounding that happens, and um, and it is really quite invigorating. There's nothing like running on the grass and bare feet. It, it makes you feel good and light and swift, and I, I really love it. And I have a lot of associations with uh, the speed of my youth, so I still get out now and then and run barefoot on the grass. Um, 
and now we have these shoes uh, and you know we've gone through a whole lot of you know being overbuilt and all the rest and um, fancy tracks with all these special you know rubbers and all the rest um, for our national championships we ran on the cinders track and it was, you know, just a very um, hard-packed sort of mineral base and uh, probably a, a certain volcanic ash or something. And uh, the it had uh, plastic tape that was nailed down to mark the lanes. And we had to wear spiked shoes, otherwise it would rip your feet to shreds. Um, and my shoes were leather and the spikes on them were like, nails. We used them for cross country and they were very long. They'd had four big spikes in the front. And um, my father had to go to the uh, local uh, garage and have the um, spikes ground down to regulation size. So that meant I could never use them for cross country again because they were then too short. And uh, that was to enable me to run in the national championships on the track. When it rained, then if you were behind in a bunch on the track, you would get absolutely covered from head to to toe in uh, the scrabble that was flung up from other people's shoes. Um, so <laughs> it, was, it was all part of it, you know. Um, so we never complained. Uh, then 1974 for the Commonwealth Games, um, the... A uh, new track was put down, and it was a synthetic uh, tartan track. And uh, but we were told, and the, the sentiment was that we don't train on it; you just raced on it, because if you trained on it too much, you would get injured. So we would train it still on the grass tracks, because they they were sort of a no-brainer. You couldn't get hurt running on the grass tracks, and you just saved the uh, special effort. Um, for the race on the on the rubber track, um, okay. so you know it was just a different way of thinking, and uh, we've grown up with it. I mean, that's, some of them were uh, probably not necessarily true, but it was, life was fairly simple in that way, and uh, we were not uh, mollycoddled athletes by any means. We were pretty tough. It sounds like anything. It. Yeah, yeah. And so since it was a community-based um, program, uh, like in the U.S., a lot of women that first started running, you know, they weren't allowed to run with the men. They were kept off the tracks. People thought they were crazy for running. But you kind of really didn't have to, to go through that as much um, in New Zealand because they kind of took running seriously there. Yes. Um, when I started, um, you know, there was not the mass running movement. Um you know, people would compete on a, um, at a at a local level, but a, um, you didn't train for it unless you really were pretty serious, and um, and you wouldn't spend a lot of time unless you sort of showed some sort of talent. Uh, so, um, yeah, it wasn't ever everybody just jogging, but we didn't have these sedentary lifestyles either. Um, Everybody was out 
working and moving and we didn't have all these weapons of mass distraction like TV and computers and iPods and all the rest that people spend hours on and don't move. And uh, so kids were really active. Um, so it was easy to, you know, get out and, you know, you could go to a sports field in New Zealand on a Saturday morning and every field would be filled because every kid would be out there playing some sport. Um, and that's changed. It's changing. Um, but, you know, now you've got people who have been sedentary and are probably obese and pre-diabetic, if not diabetic, and they decide, um, okay, I'm going to do something about it and I'm going to, um, you know, get up and try and run a marathon. And... Uh, so it's a whole different ball game when you've got people coming from that background than uh, in healthy, active people getting into training. So it has changed. It definitely has. Um, so in your career, you've had an interesting career because you started running uh, when you were 13, and as you progressed, your first marathon um, was in 79, and then you came back, well, because there wasn't the Marathon and the Olympics, but you came back and ran the 1,500, the 3,000 um, in both the Commonwealth um, and the Olympic Games, I think, but, um, at least in the Commonwealth Games. You don't see very many women running the marathon and then coming back to the track for the 15 and 3. Um, was that something that you'd plan on, or you just, that's just what you were you had available to do. Um, I think because the long distances were not available, that when I first got into doing marathoning, I treated it as something of a lack, and it was not taken seriously. I still regarded myself as a track runner because that's where it was at. So. Um, you know, I thought the only people that did marathons were people who were too slow for the track. And so even though I got in and ran some marathons, um, it was not in the Olympic Games. It was just sort of like, oh, yeah, a long run, a little bit longer than a long run. Um, but I just treated my first marathons as training runs and uh, a free trip somewhere. Um, and uh, But I always went back to the track, which was my first love. And uh, and continued to compete on the track. The interesting thing was that once I ran some marathons, um, and I continued running on the Lydiard uh, pyramid cycles, um, I I kept on improving. And the marathons actually, I ran my fastest times on the track. Uh, I think I set the New Zealand record for the 1500 meters. It was pretty close to your time. Um, Amy, um, yeah. I ran 4.10.3 in Europe, and I think that was 1986. Um, okay. And, you know, I ran my first marathon in 1979. So the speed was always there, and I think uh, I can attribute that to the correct training, the Lydiard system. It has really been tried and true, and it just uh, saw me through all those years and enabled me to um, keep that speed even uh, because I was balancing the endurance and the speed in my training 
all the time. And then when the marathon was added to the Olympics in 1984, that was your that was your first Olympics. Um, can you talk me through your first Olympic experience? You had a lot of international experience with Commonwealth Games and the Pan Pacific Games, but how was your first Olympic experience? Oh, it was amazing. The Olympics was something else, you know, and that was held as the epitome of achievement for a for an athlete. So to finally have um, made that in 1984 was just a thrill. And it was also, um, that was the first time when I, I started to take myself seriously as a marathon runner because now it had the Olympic stamp of approval. And that meant we, the, the marathon is, and women in the marathon had come of age. Um, so uh, it was in Los Angeles and, um, um, oh, very exciting to be in the Olympic Village. I remember Zola Bud coming in and, you know, running over to try and have a look at Zola and sort of listen in on her TV interview and um, seeing um, all these incredible athletes. Uh, it was just uh, quite an amazing experience. Um, the race itself was, I think, probably the most star-studded um, field that has ever been, um, and uh, just phenomenal woman, uh, Greta Bites, who was the favourite, um, and Ingrid Christensen, who was the world record holder in the marathon. I think she ran 2:22, way ahead of her time. Um, Rosa Hello? Motor, who came in the... Oh, wait, you're cutting, you're, cutting out, oh, cutting out a little bit. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, okay. Um, is that coming in again? Uh, yep, I can, hear, I can hear you again, yep. Yeah, so... Uh, you were saying that it was one of the best women's fields assembled. Yes, it was. Uh, we were all so excited, and um, the, the fields were incredible, and uh, there was... Um, uh, Greta Weitz, who was the, the favorite, and she had won New York so many times, and she was just like a, a goddess uh, to me. Um, Ingrid Christensen, who was uh, her um, compatriot and uh, had the world record, who'd run 2.22 in the marathon, and she was just way ahead of her time, set the world record. And, um, you know, it was a long time before that was touched. Um and she'd lived in Boulder for quite a while and was a very um, down-to-earth and friendly person. Um, I liked her very much and uh, always shared a lot. Uh, and then, you know, you've, I remember uh, Joni Benoit taking off and um, everybody letting her go because she'd had all those problems with her knee surgery and um, so, you know, everybody thought that that was a bit of a kamikaze stunt. Um, and just running in this big pack through L.A. Um, and uh, for me, um, I did my sort of uh, ran in the pack and then um, uh, the field started to break up when we got onto the um, San Vicente Highway. Uh, and um, that was about... Oh, 16, 17, 18 miles, something like that. And um, and I, I sort of went into a bit of a lull. I think I went to sleep for a while. 
and uh, then I I woke up and we were heading for the stadium and I went, oh God, I better get a move on and um, started to pass some people and uh, finished fifth in the race. And, uh, it was a great time of, of 2.28 as well. Yeah, and it was a personal best time. And uh, typically warm, and I did not like the warm races. I was always a little bit scared of the heat. Um, but, you know, I, I really did run well. Um, but that started me off on a soul search, and, uh, you know, I went fifth. You know, it was fifth to me by a safe place. And, um, you know, and I, I really wanted to see if I could... You know, I, I wanted an Olympic medal more than anything else, so that sort of spurred me on to do three more <laughs> Olympic marathons. Um, That's amazing. And, uh, yeah, it started an addiction, an Olympic addiction. Um, so. and, and during this time when you were racing and competing and going to the Olympics, was running your full-time job, were you sponsored at this point, or were you supporting yeah. your own running? Yes, I supported my own running until um, I came to the States in 1979. I think I got my first shoe contract um, probably around uh, 1982, um, maybe 1983. But when I first came to the sport, I did not know there was any money in the sport. It was I'd been brought up with this amateur code and uh, this old sort of... Uh, feudal system where there was no trickle-down money and you couldn't take it and it was a big taboo. Um, and uh, then um, 1981 was the uh, famous or the infamous Cascade runoff where Nike put up uh, prize money and runners ran in the race and accepted the prize money to challenge the system of amateurism. And I was a part of that. I finished third. I took the money. Um, my fellow New Zealanders, Annaldane won, and Alison Rowe finished second. And all three of us agreed we had a little pack that we were going to take the money. And we were subsequently banned from our federations. Uh, our federations banned us from the sport. And, um, and it began, uh, a, I think, showcasing... The, um, the unfair nature of how the sport was set up and uh, the prize money system was eventually instigated and uh, we had the system that we have today and uh, so that was another part of those evolutionary things that um, where I felt I was you know on the front lines and uh, I'm really proud of that I um, I think that was one of those times where it, I had to take the risk. Um, I could see no other way to, but to stand up and be counted for what I believed in. And um, each time I have done that, it has paid off in very nice ways, both um, personally and um, and being a part of some sort of social change. So. Um, it was uh, very exciting, and uh, I look back and I go, you know, that that was I was really proud of that. I pu I put it on the line. I didn't quite uh, fully comprehend that I could have been banned for life because that had happened before with other 
athletes who had tried to do it, but I felt a certain safety in numbers, and especially with my uh, fellow competitors. Um, so, yeah. So we're very clear. We definitely thank you guys for doing that for us. Yes. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> I just um, got a call. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I just got a call from Veronique Moreau, and you know, one of the things about running is that I have made some lifelong friends around the world, and the people who are my competitors um, that um, I have really um, come out of the sport of the other side with some some great friends and. Uh, shared experiences and um, Veronique was the world record uh, sorry the uh, British record holder in the marathon and uh, running 226 way back and um, she used to come over to Boulder and train but she was just reading through that history and did a BBC interview on it and then uh, decided to get on the phone and call me and just do just what you did and say thank you for doing that and it just made my day. I mean, she said, you know, I would never have got from the sport and been able to buy her houses and, you know, all the rest if we had not done that at the time. And uh, so it was just really nice to have her acknowledge that and thank you from you also. And do you think that the road race community and road race prize money and, and how they treat road races has changed. I know there's there's more charity races now and, and things like that. How do you think the road races have changed and evolved? Um, you know, I it has changed. Um, you know, there has there's also a double-edged sword because when you start to have money associated with things, it uh, does change the nature. And I think um, it also has brought in a lot more uh, cheating, uh, especially with reference to drugs, uh, because the stakes are higher. Um, and also with... Um, so that's one thing that, you know, uh, it's... Um, you know, uh, it's very sad to see, um, and I, uh, but it's also very pleasing to see um, uh, the sport, the, the big ones starting to get their uh, comeuppance. And I, I like to think you um, reap what you sow, and it's uh, nice to see that system still works. <laughs> um, you just have to wait long enough. Um, I think also that it's important in the sport that uh, people who love the sport uh, continue to run it. And I think if you get um, elements in there that really don't care but are just looking at a bottom line but do not love the sport, then um, it uh, starts to detract from the overall experience. And... Um, uh, and it is, it's a huge commercial venture. I mean, there's so much, um, you know, money in running. And um, everybody wants to sell you something. And uh, people have this idea that, you know, you need all this extra paraphernalia to go for a run, and you don't. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it's all part of the journey. And... Um, 
my message that I like to get across to people is that uh, the whole journey of running and racing is a journey of self-transformation that I think is really underrated and not talked about enough, and that it is a way for people to empower themselves and to um, understand how they can uh, become a, a, the director of their own reality and experience. And so I don't think there's a you know a better or safer way to learn to do that. I think uh, you know there'd probably be a lot less wars, and if, if we if we could just have a game and settle it that way, wouldn't that be nice? Um, I think uh, yeah, competition is just um, a great way for people to strive to get the best out of themselves but there is a way that you need to do it that invokes the authentic self and there is a way that uh, disempowers people also. And then so you, you went from running the first uh, women's marathon in the Olympics and then your second games were 1988 in Seoul, South Korea. Um, tell me about those four years between 84 and 88. Who was your coach? Do you remember what um, what kind of training you were doing and, and how were you preparing for your next Olympics? Um, well, the 84 Olympics, and uh, whenever I ran something, you know, most often, Amy, it wasn't good enough. Um, no matter what I did, you know, I was... You know, we're taught not to rest on our laurels and you think, oh, yeah, well, no matter what I did, I can do better. So that, you know, spurs you on to the next thing. And I was quite disappointed in my race in 84 because I thought that I had the ability to win a medal, but when push came to the shove, I didn't um, I didn't get out and claim it. Um, I wasn't uh, fully on it when I needed to be. And uh, so that took me on a journey of self-exploration and I decided from that point on to go it alone and I deliberately dismantled all the structures and reliances that I had including um, my coach, um, my boyfriend and uh, um, everything else that I thought that I was uh, perhaps um, looking to them to make it right and not looking to myself and uh, so um, I went it alone for quite a while and uh, and that was a wonderful time and took me through to 1988 in Seoul and uh, Seoul was really I think probably my biggest learning experience and uh, not a particularly pleasant one at that like many learning experiences are. Um, I had an expectation from my country and my people around me that since I had finished fifth in LA that I would carry off a medal in Seoul. And I went into that race with a feeling like uh, people expected too much of me without giving me the support that I needed back. Um, they made it very difficult for me to get on the team um, and uh, I actually um, 
only got on the team because of um, a, a public uh, a petition that was circulated. They had no other marathon runner, and I had done the qualifying time. But um, you know, we are in New Zealand, like many other countries, are selected by committee, and so it's really just the opinions of three people, and uh, and it depends whether they like you or not, and uh, I. You're not sure how that opinion is even formed, and a lot of it is formed from the media. Um, and, you know, I just had uh, the tide against me in a certain way. And um, so I went into the race with quite a lot of resentment um, and not the focus that I needed and uh, finished 34th instead of the second or third. And... Um, it's the only year that I never went back to my home country because I felt like such a failure. And uh, that experience, um, when it came to Barcelona in 1992 and I was 37 years old and I was being faced with a new issue and that was that um, I had age against me or that was the perception, um, and that I should have retired long ago. Um, I knew that what I needed to do, that this was probably my last chance, and that I had to get my act together, and those things that had seemingly derailed me at Seoul, I had to get a new perspective on. And um, that's exactly what I did. And um, I... Uh, developed all sorts of mental strategies uh, to deal with um, the pressure and uh, the perceptions of what other people expected from me and uh, so that I could go into the race and in the high energy um, uh, setting of the Olympic Games to be able to hold my centre and be the eye of the storm and um, that, I think, uh, made the essential difference in me being able to move from my fifth position to get a bronze medal in the Games. I, I, you know, um, so it was a, yeah, a, a terrific um, learning experience. That sounds like an amazing journey that you had between each of the Olympics. And it's probably nice that they're every four years because it gives you a chance to learn and then put those those lessons um, really into practice. Yes. And I think if you're one of these, you know, career Olympic athletes that you have to think in long-term cycles. You can't go in just as short, you know, um, think, uh, you know, to your next race or whatever. There needs to be a, a planning and um you need to become um, to regulate those ups and downs so that you hit the high points when you want them. I think that's probably one of the beauty of the Lydia training too is it teaches you how to peak and it does take a long-term view. Um, and I think that has been um, perhaps one of the drawbacks in that um, in the American system and it's partly the culture, the fast uh, culture and the um, the, the uh, instant gratification culture, um, but also 
um, you know, that college system that kids come through is that they don't think of long-term planning and um, uh, they don't learn to think in these four-year cycles. I know so many runners and many that I've coached that think of the Olympic trials and that is their goal, to make the Olympic trials, even though... You know, I'm looking at them and I'm going, you know, this person is no more talented than I was. And yet their mindset is, the bar is set so much lower and they don't um, look to uh, maybe being in the Olympics or winning a medal or dare to dream that big. Um, what do you think? Uh, is that, do you think that's correct assessment? I do. I, I think that's correct Um a lot of people just plan for, you know, maybe this season. They don't look at, at four years. And I think especially marathoners, there's only so many marathons you can run. And if, if you don't plan them right, <laughs> you kind of run out of time or you put too many in. And um, and then I think with, with, with people who race track and field, uh, sometimes – so there's not always a lot of chances to qualify. So if you if you don't look at the whole year and the whole four years and say, where's my best chance of, of running a qualifier to make the Olympics, not just the Olympic trials, I think you kind of put yourself at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. I think often, too, that um, the timing between the Olympic trials and the actual um, Olympics has not been that optimal for American athletes. And yeah. I don't know how... Um, much the people that do the program study these things, um, but you really do need um, timing is everything in racing, and um, understanding the different rhythms of um, and being able to harness them is absolutely crucial to be to get a peak performance on the day that you want it. And um, I think you can only have so many of those in your lifetime and, and per year. I think there's, I mean, that's my, do you, in your long career, do you feel that there's only so many of those very top performances that you can pull out? Yeah. Yeah, no, there, there's a few, you know. And, um, you know, when you have one of those peak experiences, then um, you, you absolutely live for the next one, you know, <laughs> trying to recreate it and figure out, how did I get there? Um, and, uh, you know, you can you can manage it, um, and uh, there's certain things you can do, but there's also um, a, sort of a mysterious factor, you know? I don't know if it's the alignment of the stars or, you know, uh, what it is, but, um, you know, you're not, it's not completely controllable. Right. Um, yeah. So maybe there's a destiny factor in there. I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's been wonderful for me because, um, you know, while there's been this whole evolution in women's running and um, there's also been this personal evolution that has pretty much um, paralleled it. And, uh, you know, I feel really, really fortunate. I, I, I have had such a wonderful time with my running life, and um, it's given me so much. I'm, I'm really, really grateful that, um, you know, as a young girl, I, you know, got in a race and 
did well and went, oh, i got to have more of this, and look where it went. Definitely. Um, during the time that you were coaching yourself, did you have training partners and, and did you use the Whittier system of training? Yes. Um, there were a few times when I went away from it and uh, tried, um, you know, intense intervals or I heard of a coach that did things a certain way and I, I went on their system for a while. Um, but usually I would end up in a hole pretty quickly, uh, be overtrained, and um, and then I would go back to my system. Um, now, my um, coach for the 84 Olympics was um, the Olymp- New Zealand Olympic silver medalist, uh, Dick Quack, and um, he became more like a mentor to me. Um, and I would go off and do my own thing. And, of course, I was living over here most of the time, and he was back in New Zealand. But um, when I really wanted to get serious, I would call him up and say, hey, would you write me a program? Because um, then I don't have to second-guess myself. Um, And um, so I would follow the program, and if I needed some help, I would give him a call, and he would make suggestions about what I could do. But... Um, we broke away from that uh, father-daughter type relationship or, you know, that sort of hierarchical thing. And being a mentor, he was just somebody who respected that the decision was mine, but I could trust his opinion and nearly always took his advice. Um, And that worked really well for me. So um, he was there in... um, uh, for nearly all the Olympic Games, um, and uh, it it worked really well. I also think, Amy, that um, a lot of athletes I see that are way too reliant on their coaches and never sort of grow out of the relationship, um, and that it is really important for an athlete to know their craft, and they... Uh, if they really want to um, do well, they need to learn all about training and how it works and uh, understand what's going on with what they're doing so that um, they can tailor it. And, um, uh, you know, because um, there is so much really good information out there and um, with regards to coaching, but there's also a lot of crap <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and you know we really need to be discerning, and uh, it's, we really need to know our craft. And uh, you know I would really think that even if an athlete is not going to become a coach later on, just for understanding what they're doing, it is uh, I would say an imperative to learn about training in, in depth. Definitely. Um, and you said that he, you know, Dick, um, Dick became your mentor. I'm sure there's other people that you've made lasting friendships with through running. Is there anybody that sticks out in your mind as, like, you know, your biggest rivals or friendships that started and, and are continuing today? Um, yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I think that it's really important to have good rivals, worthy rivals. And, uh, you know, the person that you just hate to have beat you. (laughs) And uh, I had a few of those, and they are extremely valuable 
because um, they, they'll, you know, ignite the fire where, you know, you both keep raising the bar for each other. And uh, the one that really comes to mind for me is um, Anne Ordain. She was my lifelong rival and um, just did me a great favor. And I, and I think I probably did the same for her too. Okay. And, um, you know, you come out the other side and you realize that... Um, you're actually much more alike than you're different, and I'm very grateful to her for being such a tough athlete. And um, yeah, she helped me a lot. Um, later on in my marathon running, um, a really great rival of mine was Lisa Martin, and uh, you know we were very closely matched in ability, like I was with Anne. And uh, you know we sort of had our strengths and weaknesses, but. Um, Certainly, um, I ran better because of uh, having really good rivals. That sounds great. Um, was there, were there any women that you looked up to or that you also saw as pioneers? I mean, you were definitely one of the pioneers of women's running and, and also uh, road race prize money. But were there any other women that you saw um, as pioneers or that looked up to you and, and gave you advice throughout your career? Yeah, um um, you know, the the men were really good. Um, the women role models, there were not so many of them. Um, and um, yet uh, there were quite a few good women who were always very generous. Um, and I was telling you, Ingrid Christensen was one of those. Uh, Greta was always very forthcoming. And she would come over when she would be in the in Boulder and um, I remember a few times her sitting at the table and, you know, telling me about training. Um, I remember Ingrid living in Boulder and inviting the woman over to just have them over to, you know, share what knowledge she had. Um, Rosa Motor was always uh, another friend and very generous. Um, uh I admired Catherine Switzer. She was she was not not as a runner. Just uh, she was just such a dynamic woman who was putting on these races, and um, and I loved her story. And I thought um, she was uh, really great in the way that she, um, you know, would uh, push for these opportunities for women. Um, and she and I were. Uh, close for quite a period of time um, and uh, and yet you know then I read these stories and you realize that there's been women for centuries that have just done you know got out there and they've been anomalies in their time but they they got out and ran and you know you you can go right back to you know Olympic times and there were always there was always some you know, maverick woman who just got out there and ran and just, you know, surprised everyone and nobody really knew what to do with her. And, um, you know, I I think it's a, a great phenomenon and um, there's um, uh, just a certain type. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like uh, I really love the Joseph Campbell stuff and, um, and the one thing about the hero's journey is that you follow your bliss and um, 
the women throughout history who have said to heck with convention, I'm following my bliss, have done us all huge favors. Very true. And you did a lot of runners a great favor by continuing to run and, and winning a bronze medal at, at 37, showing that it's not the age, it's more of the drive and the training and consistency. Um, tell me how you kept going through the 96 Olympics after you won a bronze. Um, you finally got that medal that you wanted, and but there was probably still more fire there because you ran through 96. Tell me about, about um, the last four years. Of, of your career Yes well you know um, 37 And I you know I put it all together and I um, I had this Dream of winning the gold medal and I ended up Winning a bronze And in the analysis of the race In the post race analysis I realised that uh, There was a point Where I had Um probably given away my chance for first or second and I settled for third. And, um, you know, I, I sort of beat myself up afterwards for doing that. And um, when I brought my bronze medal out to show people and they would say, oh, wow, it's a your medal. And I would bring it out and say, oh, but it's only a bronze, you know, and I'd make apologies for it. Um, so... In some ways, it didn't seem like it was good enough, and I went, okay, I'm going to have another uh, shot at it. And uh, when I find myself in the same situation and at the point where I have to put it all on the line, I won't hold back next time. Well, next time was a whole different next time, and I was not the same person that I was four <laughs> years earlier, and um, that same opportunity did not manifest in the same way. And um, But what did happen was that um, during the race, I had somewhat of an epiphany, and I was in the middle of the field, and... Um, there was a point on this course as we're going up and down these hills in Atlanta um, where the course looped back on itself and I could see the other runners coming um, who had already made the turn and they were way ahead of me and um, I realised that I was not going to win any medal that day and I was way too far behind but I also got to admire all these women coming by and seeing how fantastic and committed and uh, out there playing this game to their utmost to win a medal and I already had one and I hadn't appreciated it up to that point and uh, so uh, it became I think at that point a certain shift in my thinking that enabled me to finally rest on my laurels and say I don't need to do this anymore and it was a certain completion that maybe consciously I didn't know but I think uh, deep within my soul that was what I was looking for and um, enabled me to finally hang up the, the competitions and, um, and go on with the rest of my life and uh, so I tell people that in that race was where my bronze medal became gold mm -hmm. because uh, ultimately it is a, 
an inner journey, and uh, gold is um, it means something different for everybody. But uh, and uh, um, yeah. Yes, and you you had turned you were forty one at the time, so you had actually started even a different journey, competing in masters as well. So, did you compete in masters after the ninety six Olympics? Did you continue to do that, or or did you just no. decide that you're done on all levels? No, I was done. I was done when I was done. I wasn't really interested in competition at a lower level than what I'd done. Um, it didn't have the same thrill. Um, it it was complete for me, and the next part of my journey was um, was motherhood, and um, and uh, a whole host of other things, and um, you know that that meant reinventing myself. I had to sort of get out of warrior mode and get into a, a different kind of mode again, and um, you know I just sort of I did that late, and I sneaked under the wire, and. Um, um, you know, that's he's really my gold medal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really happy about that. Yeah. The life has been very full and rich and uh I'm very grateful for it. And, uh, and I'm not done yet. <laughs> that's great. That's that's good. I I hope you're not done yet. I think you have a lot <laughs> left to give and um I've asked a couple of the women about the decision to have children during your running career. Some some women put it off to the end. Um, they didn't think their careers would be that long, but they did. And some were able to have children, some weren't. Um, some had their children in the middle of their careers, and they still went on to run well. Um, what was what was your decision? Um, were you thinking about kids at all during your career? Or yeah, I always um, had thought I would have a big family, um, but I was too busy on this running thing, and um, that was what I wanted to do so you know I was always trying not to have kids um, and then um, when I retired and uh, and I was married again and um, and I went gosh you know I was like the woman in the cartoons who, oh my gosh I forgot to have children um, and uh, so I it was my next um, adventure, really, and it's funny because it came in exactly a four-year cycle. So um, she was born during the time of the Sydney Olympics, and um, um, it was like I was, I was pregnant, and I sat down to watch the Olympic Games opening ceremony, and you know, I think my body just went, "Oh, Olympics! It's showtime!" You know, when I went into labour, and uh, then I had my next marathon. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Um, but, you know, I it took me four years and I had four miscarriages before I had my child. And, uh, you know, people went, oh, you know, it's all that running, you've done too much running, or you're too thin and all the rest. So, you know, then I had to, uh, so I stopped running completely and I, I cut with it. I didn't want to read running magazines. I didn't want to see how other people were doing. I, I just didn't want to invoke that competitive spirit in me. I wanted to just let that go to rest. And um and I put on weight and um I completely uh changed and um but I'll tell you one thing is that I had uh confidence 
that I could do it. I, re- I really felt like if I put my mind towards anything, I can make it happen for me. And that I got through my running experiences. And uh, with that attitude, um, I did not give up. And, uh, you know, I had my child um, at age 45 and um, without medical intervention um, to conceive or carry her or anything um, and uh, and she's you know just a wonderful healthy kid and um, that's I amazing her I so um, you know I do believe that uh, we are far more powerful creatures most more so than any of us really believe and that um, you know anything is possible I really believe in the uh, and the potential of human beings and what we can achieve and uh, um, that you know if we have a dream we can make it happen and uh, for all of uh, that I think um, coming out the other side and believing that is just wonderful and that's uh, an attitude that I hope I'm passing on to my daughter that'd be great and I know you you gave up competing after the '96 Olympics, but I'm sure you're still busy now. So I've read about the, the Lydiard Foundation. Um, tell me a little bit about that and how it got started and, and what you're doing. Yes, uh, thanks, Amy. I'm um, uh, pretty busy. Um, the Lydiard Foundation. We Arthur Lydiard died on tour in 2004 in Texas. Um, he gave a talk to a sellout crowd of 600 um, the night before, and um, the next day he uh, he passed away in his hotel room. And uh, he set in motion um, a seeding of a, um, around the world of the system, which is used by um, many countries and has been adopted by their national federations as an official training system only because it's so successful and it's tried and uh, it's proven. And uh, really he was the grandfather of periodization and uh, running um, in a way that uh, sequentially develops the energy systems. So after Arthur passed away, I got together with a friend of mine who is uh, who is a Japanese running coach who lives in Minnesota, and Nobuya Hashizumi, who's known as Nobby. And... Um, I said to him, let's start a Lydiard Foundation. Actually, Lydiard had um, himself had uh, passed on um, the legacy to Nobby and I before he died. Nobby had organised this tour, and um, so we set up the Lydiard Foundation, and we have been going since 2006. Um, so we're in our seventh year. Um, it's been a, a big venture, um, and. Uh, we have a lot of programs, um, coaching system, we have an online coaching system, we have a coaches certification. Uh, we just moved the foundation to Boulder. Um, I'm the president of the foundation at the moment. We have a full program uh, um, scheduled for this year. Um, and uh, I think we would make the old man proud, but really what we want to do is um, uh, help to lift the standard of coaching um, and the, the qualifications for who can call themselves a coach um, and to uh, 
help spread the uh, the good work that Arthur started. Um, and you know, Amy, uh, probably just a little bit of history, but um, Arthur Lydiard is the father of jogging, and um, the jogging movement started in, um, when uh, Bill Bowerman came over to New Zealand to see what Arthur Lydiard was doing and saw that he was coaching a bunch of cardiac patients by having them run uh, marathons, by doing marathon training. And um, this was in the 60s. And um, at the time, the treatment for marathon, uh, sorry, for cardiac patients was to have them sit on a sofa and be sedentary. And Arthur said, uh, no, you have to exercise the heart and got them running marathons. Um, and Bill Bowman came back and wrote a paper on jogging and uh, that became the basis for the running boom and uh, several other factors influencing it, of course, like Frank Shorter's marathon win and all the rest. But, um, you know, that when Bill Bowman went and got his presidential medal from... Uh, for his contributions to sport, he said, I um, I am but the um, disciple, Arthur Lydiard from New Zealand, it's a prophet. Mm. And um, so, you know, he was a great man in his time and um, he really did a lot to further coaching and um, I am uh, helping to continue and uh, keep that legacy alive. So... That's what I'm doing with the Lydia Foundation, and I'm really uh, pleased. We've, we've had um, some very good help um, in this country, and I think uh, people are, are catching on, and um, American distance runners is, uh, have finally, um, you know, you've had some wonderful runners that have... Um, being able to compete on um, on a par with the Africans when was I remember when I was competing there was sort of a, a sentiment among Americans that they couldn't compete with the Africans and uh, there were uh, quite a few meetings held about what to do um, about that and uh, and yet I see some really nice changes happening here and uh, it's it's all really positive. And here you are doing this work, which is just great, you know. So, yeah, it's it, it's very fun. I um, when I got asked to do it, I was very excited because I've I've read a lot of books. Your book um, on the wings of Mercury came at a great time for me because I'm, you know, trying to decide if I'm done and transitioning to something else. And and when I got asked to do this project, I thought, you know, these women have had amazing stories and they did so much for women's running. Um, just by breaking down barriers and, and showing what can be done. And I wanted the current and future generations to hear the stories through your voice um, and have you guys tell it. Um, and, and I just I was very excited about that because everyone has had great stories. And you guys have amazing advice that I hope people uh, listen to and, and learn from. Oh, well, thank you. And, uh, and thank you. <laughs> for <laughs> giving us this opportunity I think it's important to um, to preserve our history and to learn from those who have gone before us and um, and to create that um, verticality within the sport because it gives it gives us its depth and 
And so I really appreciate you um, doing this work. And I hope you keep running till you're done, you know, <laughs> till you till you yeah. cross the line and you go, that's it, I know I'm done. Because uh, you obviously have an incredible range, and I was looking through your uh, bio and your website and um, just going, gosh, oh, she's very much like me and her range and, um, you know, just some wonderful performances there and you've obviously got what it takes, you know. So don't give up on it if you haven't <laughs> finished, you know. Yeah, it, there's, there's definitely a lot of things I want to do. I'm, I'm trying to get my body to cooperate with uh, with, with my mind at the moment. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yep. Oh, definitely. Uh, is there anything else that I've missed or that you'd like to add about women's running, running, the literary system, anything that, um, that you want to add uh, to, to the project? Um You know, I, I think I've sort of covered a lot of ground. Um, you did. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, thanks. You know, I told you I sort of I sort of run with it, you know. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, but, uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, there's nothing, I think, outstanding right now. I think it's probably um, just a ton to sort of plow through. Um, so uh, what, do you have an injury at the moment? I've been injured for the last two years. Um, I've had two Achilles surgeries. It's all been lower leg except for the current one. Um, they thought I had some sciatic nerve issue, but it ended up being a, a really high hamstring issue, or yeah, really high hamstring problem, and um, I kind of ran through it so much that now I have swelling in the bone, which makes it incredibly painful to sit. So. <laughs> um, oh. That's what I've got now. It's just, uh, yeah, it's been interesting. Um, I'm learning to be patient, but as always. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's why yeah. I have to, I'm trying to get my body to cooperate with my brain. Yeah. You know, uh, we always used to say that if you have an injury, it's just nature's way of stopping you from killing yourself, you know. <laughs> probably uh, so. Because you, you probably get to a point where um, you're actually getting a bit depleted. And um, I had a surgery on my foot in 1990 and then came back and won the bronze medal in 1992. And I think that probably gave me the um, restoration that I needed to have the energy in the bank to go out and uh, make another supreme effort. You know, and then when I tried to do another one on top of that, it just wasn't there. But, um, you know, and so, you know, Maybe there is a comeback if you if you really want to do it. You know, it's yeah. entirely up to you. Um, but you know, you you have done some uh, really wonderful performances, and uh, you must be very proud of your career. I hope you are. I hope you're not in a dissatisfied like. Uh, if if there is, then you you got to go back. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think you know. There's just you always have more that you want to do, and I just have to decide if. If I'm okay with not accomplishing, you know, those few things, but um, I don't know. We'll see. I'm I'm kind of in that in that transitional period, and first I have to get healed, and then and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, you know, um, with uh, Constantina Dita, she was staying in Boulder before she was heading out to Beijing, and there was a party there, and um, so I went over to to this 
party to wish them well and uh, and um I was asking her about what she wanted to do in the Olympics. And she said, well, you know, I'm 38 years old and I just hope I can have a good run, you know. I sort of jumped on a case and I said, you could win it. My goodness, you know, I won a bronze and I just, you know, I was 37 and I said, yeah, you've got all this experience. And, you know, people don't believe that age stuff anymore. And, um... And she went out and won it. So um, that was that was an, I love that when she won it. I was like, oh, I can you know, it's for you. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it was sort of like she played it so well, you know. And um, it was just just impeccable timing. And that's what comes with experience. And uh, you know, she came back and um, with a big thank you for saying that to her because she said it was just what she needed at the moment. And, um, you know, and that's what people have done for me. They've just said the right thing at the right time. And, you know, and it just, um, I, I gave a talk last night to a group of women and um, and I was just telling them that when you make a decision, think of the um, of the decision that you make and then see how it sits with you. And does it make you feel up or does it make you feel contracted and small? And then you know whether it's the right decision or not. You know, because that's the um, the learning to follow your bliss and to tune into that, um, that part of the self that will drive you to the fulfillment of your dreams, you know, whichever crooked path it usually takes you on, but, um, you know, so, anyway, so just, you know, see, you know, think that. of um, think of retiring and just see how it feels within your body, and see if it yep. just makes you feel down, or, and then think about, okay, I'm going to you know, I'm going to have a shot at da 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 and choose your goal and see how that feels within you. And because um, your body is such a great feedback system, and one thing about runners is they're very connected to their bodies. Yeah, that is definitely a gift that that we have and we've learned for sure. Yeah, I like that. That's, I, I love that. I love that advice. That's amazing. Well, Lorraine, this has been a great interview. I've, I've learned a lot. I've, I've definitely, you know, come away inspired, and I hope everybody else does. Um, not only the interview, but the Lydia Foundation and your book um, on the wings of Mercury. I, I enjoyed reading it. It was the perfect timing for me. So, thank you for. Thank you. Yeah.